Hello, and uh, this is Mr. Zarzicki from Half Hollow Hills High School East, reporting from Foyle's Bookshop in Charing Cross Road in London, England. And today, Monday, August 29th, I am interviewing the American humorist and writer David Sedaris on behalf of the Hills Review podcast. Do you mind me if calling you David or Mr. Sedaris? David's fine. Uh, David has graciously agreed to meet with me for a few minutes for an interview made up from student questions generated from last year's senior class. For the past 15 years, I have taught, David, uh, and your work to seniors uh, in high school to practice different elements of reading comprehension and literary analysis. Um, David, thank you so much for taking this time with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Now, this all began back in December of 2019. Um, I had just seen you in SUNY Purchase. And after that meeting, I went back and told my students uh, that, we ha- that, I, that I met you and then you did a reading. And a student of mine asked a question, which I have received many times. And it's always the same you know, measure of saying, as an English teacher, how do you know what the author means, what he or she writes? In other words, I write up these quizzes and I am trying to make educated guesses on inference and analytical meaning mm-hmm. behind the works. Um, and the student had just take one, taken one of your reading quizzes, which I wrote, and uh, was basically refuting its legitimacy. But instead of asking me to defend my assessment, he dared me to send you the quizzes and, uh, and have you take them, which you did. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was during COVID, mm-hmm. and then you had mailed back to me all the quizzes. Um, and it, they were, you know, very excited when I told them about it. And um, the one thing that they asked me to start with was, have you always written back to fans? And why do you do it when so many celebrities don't? I got COVID in May, uh, end of May, first week of June, and it was perfect timing because I had, I believe it was 180. I, the day before I'd gone to my publishing house, and I saw this massive stack of mail that had spilled off someone's desk onto the floor, and it was all for me. It was 180 <laughs> letters. So while I had COVID, I wrote back. And I didn't write back four people, because four people were, this is something that people tend to do now. If they disagree with you, then they, I'm never reading any of your books ever again. I'm telling all my friends never to read any of your books <laughs> ever again. I'm taking all your books, I'm throwing them in the fireplace. So there's no room to, there's no room to discuss anything. So those people, I don't bother uh, writing back. But everybody else, I write back. I don't write back. I try not, I don't engage with people on social media. Like, I have a Facebook page. I've never seen it. I've never seen my Instagram page. I've never seen my Twitter account. So I don't, uh, I don't. But if somebody writes me a letter and takes the time to write me a letter and put a stamp on it, of course, I don't write back. But what you were saying before, you know, your students questioning your legitimacy. Um, you know, I went to art school and, you know, I think like a lot of people when I was young, I might look at an abstract painting or I might look at an art installation and I might feel like, I don't understand this. One of the things they taught us in school is, yeah, you do. Like, calm down. Don't be afraid. Look at it. Uh, treat the artist with respect, right? And assume that they're not just an idiot and they didn't just throw this together. And I bet you know exactly 
with that person inside. So you think it's fair that I do this? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> well, uh, the second question, and this always comes up too, is a lot of the students want to know what you think about being taught in high school and colleges. Do you ever think of, of your work as teachable or literary? Mm. I feel really bad that my books are in schools because the second you turn into homework, everything changes. Mm. You know, now people have to write. It's one thing, you know, to read something or to come to a reading, and that's great. But the second you're turned into homework, that's a different. So I apologize to everyone <laughs> to whom I am homework. Never occurred to me growing up. Never. Well, how about this? Me. This is a great example of a question that I asked. Um, have, you've heard of Dear Evan Hansen, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they novelized the play. They made it um, a full-length novel, a narrative. Um, and the author's name is Val Emich. And inside that book, are you familiar with the plot? No. Okay, so I'm not going to go through details, but there is one situation where a, a character named Connor Murphy is learning about life from somebody he looks up to. His name is Miguel. And there's one quote from the book, and I teach, when I teach novels, I teach them how to look up allusions or references that they don't know. And the quote in the book is, he said, he knew a little about everything. He's talking about Miguel. Um, spoke about subjects I've never considered, cryptocurrency and alkaline foods. Quoted people I've never heard of, like Nietzsche and David Sedaris. <laughs> so what do you think about being referenced right next to Frederick Nietzsche? As like this, you know, wise... But you know, the thing is, if you didn't know who Nietzsche was, then you wouldn't know who... If you didn't know either of us, uh, like if they're just two names that probably most Americans have never heard of, then it makes... Then I'm fine. Then I'm fine. But the thing company. is, your but name... But if you were saying that... that I was worthy of him, yeah. then that would be, you know, then that would be ridiculous. Well, the thing is, I mean, in use of the novel, I wanted my students to realize what was being learned from reading Nietzsche mm. and Sedaris, you know, and that's where you are right now when your name is referenced typically in that, in that manner, even though you're a humorist by well, trade. I felt that way when I was in the New York Times Crossroad Puzzle, <laughs> the first time I was in the, because I was doing the puzzle and I thought, wait a minute, that's me in the puzzle? Do they still do the days of the week when it gets harder? Yeah. Okay, because yeah. I still teach that essay that you wrote about. It's one of the students' favorites when um, the woman oh, next to Oh, is the language you, a problem? Uh, I, I think I, I say whore. Yeah, you, I get away with it. Let's put it that way. They're seniors, <laughs> but when you accidentally um, cough up the cough drop under her crotch, <laughs> they love it. Um, so oh, I remember that so clearly. You know, like every now and then something happens and you think, how am I going to live through this? Oh, it was an incredible story. <laughs> um, do you mind if I ask you questions about your high school? No. They were curious. So you went to Sanderson High School. Uh -huh. uh, what did you think of your high school experience when you went there? Oh, it was a public high school. And, you know, I think I got a really good public school education. You know? I mean, I hated school... In junior high, but high school, for me anyway, was where I found my tribe, you know, I found the drama club, and then I had English teachers that, that paid attention to me. I wasn't writing, you know, I mean, I would write my homework, but it wasn't extraordinary in any way, but just, you know, I took an advanced world lit class, and you know, it was just a different group of people, you know, they were like people who chose an English course, and so, you know, everybody had to take English, sure. but this was, 
um, and and you know read a lot of things you know that people are supposed to read like Flaubert and things like that and I, yeah, I felt I felt um, I felt like I, I got a really good uh, high school education like I didn't wish that I went somewhere else in Raleigh you know in Raleigh North Carolina um, a lot of so many people think that high school is worthless so all that stuff you don't it has no the thing today, students say, oh, this is not applicable to my life. I can't get a job with this education. It seems so generalized. That's not the point. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like it's sort of if you were studying Latin and someone would say, well, people don't even speak Latin anymore. There's something about learning a language that applies to everything. It just applies to learning. It applies to establishing a curiosity because if you're not curious about the world and if you're not curious about things, you're just doomed. I mean, there's nothing, nothing better. And also, it's, you know, I've always felt so bad for people who never figured out what they were interested in, you know? And sometimes you just got to try this and try this and try this and try this, and then you hit on it. But if you don't try anything, and if you think, well, I'll try it when it interests me, that's a, a losing game too. Because again, you don't, you don't know. You might hear something in the dullest class you can think of. You might hear something one day that would completely change the course of your life. Yeah, well, my next question was, you know, in terms, you said you had your tribe and your classes. How much of your identity today do you think came from those formative high school years? Is there anything that you remember mm -hmm. clicking or coming into focus when you were a teenager? Well, to tell you the truth, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but all I ever wanted was to walk into a room and have people say, that's him, look, it's him. <laughs> that's, it meant so much, I don't know why it meant so much to me. I was just reading this George Michael biography and he had said something, and I'm not paraphrasing very well, he said people become, people don't become famous for what they have, they become famous for what they're missing. And that seemed so true to me. I mean, I know so many people who were in the entertainment business or whatever, maybe they just didn't get the attention they wanted growing up or the support or the love that they wanted. And so they just spend the rest of their lives demanding for approval from strangers, you know? Mm -hmm. like, but you didn't do any acting in high school. Oh yeah, I did acting. Oh, you did? Oh. Yeah. What was your acting. favorite part that you did? Uh, I did part? acting. The problem was that when I was in, you know, starting when I was a kid, I had all these nervous tics that were really, really noticeable. You know, like everything from rolling my eyes deep back in my head to making little noises. And then I got, like, I was Mr. Antrobus in the skin of our teeth. I just saw that at Lincoln Center. Did you, and the uh, second I walked on the stage, every single tick came back, every oh. single one. and and. The audience, my cast members were like, what's going on? You know, he wasn't like this in rehearsal. Um, and it was like Carrie, you know, it was like Carrie <laughs> was. Did you um, get through it? Yeah, okay. I mean, I got through it, but you know, there were three nights of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it was a sort of thing that my, the worst of my takes had kind of gone away, but then before I went on stage, I just thought, God, wouldn't it be awful if everything came back? And then, that's all, like whenever I have to go on TV, I'm in the dressing room and I think, wouldn't it be awful if they came back? They After all, all these all years? Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
I remember the Plague of Ticks, that's the essay. I've taught excerpts of that. But um, how about in terms of an English class? They were wondering, do any, because when I assign books, as you said, it takes away some of the, it's almost like uh, passive-aggressive, you know, uh, unwillingness to participate because it's a responsibility. But were there any books uh, in high school that you remember loving that were assigned to you? Sure. Uh, we read Catcher in the Rye in high school. And that really woke me up. I don't think I'd ever read anything like that that uh, spoke to me. You know, the, the, the book speaks to young people, you know, and it never, never gets old, you know? I mean, it might have taken place in the 1940s as opposed to, you know, 2020. It doesn't make any difference. Mm. So perfectly captured that feeling of being uh, a young person. It's still in our book room. Uh, it's not mandatory, but they do still teach it. Um, there were, what I remember really clearly too is I had this English teacher named Miss Sutton, and she was, everyone described her as a handsome woman, you know. She was maybe in her 70s. And I remember class had just, it was like the first week of class, and she called on me about something. And I said, oh, I get, didn't get a chance to read it. And she said, you what? She said, and, and that never happened again. Boy, she really, I don't, I wish I could remember her exact words, but it was like, right. You know, wow. it just wasn't an option. But I remember we would read things out loud in class sometimes, and I would think, oh, call on me, call on me. And I couldn't believe the people that would be called on, and they would read something so poorly. I would think, and I guess it was, like reading out loud is what I was born to do, mm. you know. Uh, it's the laziest form of show business. <laughs> I have another question on that uh, in a couple of, in a couple of questions. But another one they wanted to know was if you could put if you were a high school English teacher today, is there any book of you know that you've read that you think would be great to teach to high school students today? Cruddy. Cruddy. Did you ever read Cruddy by Linda Berry? No, never heard of it. It's, uh, gosh, I remember reading when I first, I've read it twice, but it, again, it was a book about teenagers, but it's so perfect, it was so timeless, you know, just so for a certain kind of teenager, um, really spoke to somebody who just felt like everyone and everything was against them, and it just wasn't fair. Oh, great. Such I'll a, such a good, uh, Do you remember when it was written? Funny book. It came out, I remember, in like 1994. Okay. I believe. Excellent. I'll definitely take a look at that. Um, the other thing um, that they were interested in is the, I guess, the transcendence of your essays in terms of relating to all age groups. And I don't know, again, in all your travels and all your experiences talking to people, do you have any connection or notion of like teenagers in today's culture, you know, whether it's in Europe or in America. It's different. Teenagers in England are really powerful teenagers. Like, they just know that everyone's afraid of them, and they're just <laughs> drunk with that power. It's really odd. Teenagers here. Teenagers here are in charge. They really, really oh, wow. don't feel that way. Adult like in charge or spoiled in charge? Entitled? No, it's not about that. It's about being really uh intimidating 
and you know you're not just one you know they're getting backs you know mm -hmm. to do that do you have any teenagers in your life in terms of uh, uh do I have any teenagers in my life right now i know you have one niece i don't know how she's right you. she's 19 now 19. uh no i don't i mean i meet teenagers when i go on tour and i tend to i'm always so honored you know because i think you know, I mean, it was one thing 20 years ago, but now I'm the grandfather's age. You know, I mean, I'm really fall my, and it makes me, I realize too, like if I meet a teenager before I start the event, and I, I just think of how old this must sound to them. You know, like a wall-mounted telephone and a, um, you know, you're, even if you're talking about emailing somebody, you know, as opposed to, they love the stories when you reflect, though. For example, the, the family that lived close to you in North uh, Carolina uh -huh. at the Halloween. Uh -huh. You know, so stories from the 60s or the 70s already are period pieces, so it kind of gets away from that datedness. Uh -huh. um, when you write, do you ever consider or try to appeal to younger audiences? No. Uh, no, I don't go out of my way to. I don't think of anybody, I guess, when I write. I mean... I mean, sometimes if you think, okay, well, how can people relate? How can I write about this in a way that people can relate to it? But then you're talking about like buying a Picasso painting. So most people can't buy a Picasso painting, right? But most people want to belong, you know? So if you can write about it that way, if you can write about it like, I feel like if I buy this Picasso painting and I belong to this community of people, they don't even know who I am. Uh, I don't know why I want to be a member of their club. Then I think there's a way that you can write about it that people will understand. They can relate it to something that they've done. You know, Absolutely. whereas you're just talking yeah. about, well, I wanted a 1921 Picasso painting, and this is only 1919, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I feel like that happens more and more often now. I feel like something's changed now, and that people often want to see themselves. They want their book to be a mirror, and they want to see themselves in the book. Mm -hmm. And when I grew up, like there weren't any books. I'm 65, so there weren't any books at my library with any gay people in them, none. I mean, the public library, let alone my school library. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I read a book, I had to relate to it because the characters were humans and I was humans, you know? So it wasn't an option of like, oh, I'm gonna read about a 22-year-old white guy who's gay, who has a boyfriend, you know, who is uh, black, who lives in North Carolina. That's what I wanna read about. Now I could read about mm -hmm. that, but back then, the best I could do was just read Moby Dick, you know? <laughs> Think, well, okay, it's got the word dick in it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many ingredients. The students love your self-deprecation, they love your humor, those things transcend age. Um, in terms of subject matter, though, as you reference, sometimes I teach things and you say things, you know, there's one um, essay called Standing By, when there are um, oh, right, references, right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, things right. I'm not going to say on this, but um, is there any is there any place you won't go? Is there anything too taboo that you won't touch? I don't write about my sex life just because uh, when you're in front of an audience, you're a paper doll, 
And if you say, I got in the car and I went to the grocery store, people are taking you with a paper doll and they're putting you in the car and they're putting you in the grocery store. So if you talk about anything sexual, they're taking your clothes off and they're doing that. And when you're 65, no one wants to see that. Mm -hmm. It was just never my subject, really. Mm -hmm. Is it true that Hugh gets on you about using profane language sometimes in your essays? I mean, what what did we say recently? He scolded me for something. And it wasn't even... It wasn't even, you know, it was like, what the heck? You know, it was, it was something like that. There's no need for that kind of language. <laughs> I just have a, a few more questions. Sure. Is it okay? Um, so yesterday, I was reminded of, of, a, of a question a student asked me. Have you ever been to the Charles Dickens Museum in London? Uh, yeah, I did go once. So they have, on one of the floors of his house, um, his tailor-made mobile um, lectern. And... Uh, in the 1850s and 60s, he would tour in the United, just like you. And this is 150 years ago, he would read passages from his book. Um, and, you know, um, students are always so curious because in my class, when I assign your work, I always, if I can, play the audio to go with it. So they are reading and listening to you at the same time. Uh, and they just wanted to know what made you want to read in front of your uh, of audiences of your work? Is it go, go back to what you said in high school as an actor and just performing? Um, well, it's funny what you just said about the portable lectern because I just finished a 22-city tour in, in England, in, in Scotland, and because uh, I have a radio show here so I can sell tickets, you know. Uh, but people... Um, we have to travel with the lectern in the car because theaters don't have them. Oh. So, and I was just talking about making a portable one, you know, one designing or having you design a portable one that'll fold flat. Um, I was in college and I was taking a creative writing class and the teacher liked my story and asked me to read it out loud. And I read it out loud and people laughed. And I thought, how did I not know this is what I wanted to do with my life? <laughs> and I was 20. 28, you know, because I dropped out of college and I went back later. So I was 28 years old. And I'd been writing for eight years by that point, but I'd never showed it to anybody, you know, because it wasn't that good. But uh, I read this story and then I thought, that's, that's what I want. Not, I already knew I wanted to write, but I thought, I want to write and I want to read it out loud. The theatricality of it yeah. is great. I mean, there's a reference to Charles Dickens when he used to read, much like Mark Twain, they would get so into it. And he would, and I see you do is I've seen you five times uh, speak. And every time there's a laugh, you make a little notation to yourself sometimes. Or as you're reading, you, you make little annotations mm-hmm. about pausing and almost like a direction of your, of, your, of your reading, which is so great because, I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, but do you think that the audio element can add to the reading experience? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I worry that it's cheating in a way, you know, that you don't have to describe someone's voice, you just do it, right? Um, yeah, sometimes I worry that it's... Uh, it's so good, That though. you're taking shortcuts <laughs> that way. But, you know, there's a show called Selected Shorts, and actors read things on stage, mm-hmm. usually short stories, but they've done about five of my things. And uh, i got to say, I just cringe every time I can't get through it um, and it's because they're too dramatic you oh, know it's like okay. too like Stephen Fry 
okay? Read the Harry Potter books in England. Mm -hmm. And every single character had a different voice. And it was phenomenal, right? But then I did some listening. I listened to a lot of audiobooks. And I was listening to an audiobook that, like, narrator gave every character a different voice, but after five voices, she'd run out of material in her voice bag. <laughs> so let's say a woman would go to the grocery store and the person would say, um, that will be three dollars and fifty cents, please. <laughs> and it's like, well, there's no reason to make that person sound like that. It's a minor character. We're never going to see him again. Mm -hmm. Children aren't listening. Uh, take it back. You know, like, pull back a little. Like, there's really no need yeah, to... Yeah, I totally understand. To, uh, to, there's an audio service called Autumn, A-U-D-M. It costs like six bucks a month. And they read articles and from different magazines, like 20 different magazines. The New Yorker, uh, the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic. And they have really good narrators for those. So a couple of those people, like for The New Yorker, um, Audible, The New Yorker uses the Audible. So... When I have a story in the New Yorker, somebody on Audible will read it, and I and they've asked me, like there's a, a woman who does uh, a lot, Julia Whalen, and I said, oh, can she read one of my essays? And it was a, you know, first person in my voice, but I didn't care. Mm -hmm. um, and then this guy Eduardo Ballerini did the last one, and I and them, God, I, I love to hear my stuff read by them. I wish I could just call them right now and say, look, this is a draft of a story. Can you just read this? So then I could hear it and then know where I'm going wrong. You know, I wish I could get them to read, like, at my command. Do you ever read and listen at the same time? Read. So if you, if you wanted a book, uh, would you ever listen and read simultaneously? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You do that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, it helps in the immersion of the story? And what it helps for me is that if I'm reading a really good book, I always want to transcribe the best parts in my diary. And it's kind of a drag when you're having to stop the audio book and then write it down and then think, hey, did I hear that right? So I just buy the book too and mm -hmm. copy it down from the book. Okay, just bonus time. Quick questions. Sure. Um, a lot of my students know your sister uh -huh. and they want to know, did you watch The Mandalorian, or were there just the parts that she no, was Amy's in? No, Amy's never watched The Mandalorian either. Really? No, she doesn't. Amy called me, and she said, oh, I'm doing this TV show. It doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, the Star not... Wars is right, huge right. and everything. No. <laughs> and then Amy said, the dialogue doesn't make any sense at all. I can't memorize the lines. I don't know what I'm supposed to be talking about. And so She was a mechanic. I'm, I know. Uh, yeah. So I said to her, well, I'll help. I'll run lines. I'll help you run your lines, right? And then she said, we must defeat tyranny. And I said, Amy, I'm pretty sure that's tyranny. <laughs> she thought there was a character named tyranny. Oh, I, we never know in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> so crazy. She was great and it. It's so funny. Um, have you ever, is there any celebrity that you've ever met that you were intimidated by? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm not good at meeting celebrities. I mean, I'm not. If you told me that, if you said, oh, my wife's going to join us in a minute. She was in a shampoo commercial in 1987. I wouldn't be able to look her in the eye. I'd be in a wreck. <laughs> and I don't know why. I don't know what that is. But I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know any. I mean, I'm sure I've met a bunch once, you know, like. But 
even me like a hero or somebody that you really looked up to um, in any way? Yeah, I mean, there's a writer who I worship uh, named Tobias Wolf, and I remember I always loved him. The very first, from the very first thing I read by him, I was just so influenced by him and so. You know, so I, a story of his came out. I would clean my house, get everything, because I knew I would be transfixed, you know, by the end of that story. And then I had a friend who, uh, who I went to college with, and she loved Weiswolf too. And then I wrote to her and she said, Oh, Toby? She said, His fall bashes this weekend. Why don't you come? So I got on the train and went to Syracuse. I went to his house. And it was mainly people from his church who were there. And he was. And everybody else was sober. I got so drunk. I went into his <laughs> driveway and I got high. I mean, it wasn't that kind of a party, you know? And I just couldn't even, I was so tongue-tied and so in awe of him. And about a month later, he came to New York City because he had a book that came out. And he came, went to Barnes & Noble to do an event. And he said, David, and I can't tell you what it meant to me that he remembered my name. I, I, I don't know that he'll ever know what that meant to me, you know, the fact that he... But I remember it made me think, like, that's a responsibility, you know? Like, if people like, like your stuff or whatever, it's a responsibility not to let them down, you know? And like, to write them back a letter, to you talk to them when they waited in line to get a book signed, you know? I mean, it's, it, I, know what it, I know what it feels like when somebody sees you. And I know what it feels like when you're right in front of them and they don't see you. And uh, it doesn't take any effort to see somebody, you know. But I always think of him as my example. I always think like, gosh, it just meant so much to me that he remembered me. You know? Well, that is a perfect full circle because just like, I mean, not that I'm anything close to you with Tobias Wolf, but just the fact that you have agreed to meet with me and speak with me with this interview, I can't thank you enough for everything.